Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of About Abroad, where it's my job to introduce you to people who have built amazing lives for themselves in various foreign corners of the globe. We're talking with expats and thought leaders about moving abroad, remote work, visas, and all the fun and practical knowledge that you need to know to follow in their footsteps. If you've ever dreamed of making a life for yourself overseas, maybe working remotely or embracing long-term travel, retiring or studying abroad, or even just taking a peek inside life beyond your borders, you've landed in the right place. This episode is brought to you by my friends over at Make My Move. Many of you are already aware that there are places around the world that want to attract remote workers to come and live there. But did you know that some of them will actually pay you to do so? Yeah, that's right. And aside from the cash incentives these towns might offer you, there are other incredible benefits ranging from free babysitting to concert tickets and even free healthcare. These places also make a terrific home base for digital nomads with super fast internet, friendly neighbors, and affordability in close proximity to major airports. In fact, the remote workers who relocate typically say around $20,000 per year by moving to these new communities. But perhaps most importantly, the locals in those communities are truly excited to welcome new movers in and get them plugged into the local network. The problem is, where do you start? But luckily, Make My Move is your one-stop shop for all things related to these towns. Since 2021, they've helped more than 1,000 remote workers and their families relocate, and through their platform, you can explore all the places that are offering incentives to come and live there, get personalized help to find the place that's right for you, connect with the locals, super important, and access support services to actually make the move a reality. Take advantage of all the benefits that come with your location independence by checking out makemymove.com via the link in the show notes. My guest today is my friend Lauren, who joins me all the way from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And we spend a little bit of time there and explore Kuala Lumpur together. But we really zoom out in this one. We're talking about building a country on the internet and what that means for the future of travel, digital nomads, global mobility, emerging economies, all of the above. Lauren is the executive director of special projects for the Plumia Project at Safety Wing. We get into all that. You don't need to know what it means right now. And she's also the author of her new book, Global Natives, which you can pre-order via the link in the show notes. So there was a ton to dive into with this one. Lauren's an awesome guest, world-renowned in this space, and a longtime digital nomad herself. So she had a ton to share on all things that we love to talk about here on About Abroad, and we'll get right into it in this episode. Really enjoyed this. I think you will as well. Please help me in welcoming Lauren to About Abroad. Yeah, I thought you would be uh, you would be proud, Lauren, because I know you're a coffee fanatic to a higher degree than me. I found out when we were, when we were in Madeira, um, but I'm sipping on a a really good little uh, V60 here this morning, inspired by our our shared V60 back uh, last week in Madeira. So, cheers, welcome. Thank you. And uh, what what kind of beans are you are you drinking right now? Oh man, you're going to show my noviceness. I didn't ask. I just told them I, I, I had a podcast coming up and I wanted a, a V60 and they, they made it for me. So sorry, I should have gotten more details. Don't judge me. You, you get points for having good coffee in your hands, but you, you lose points for not knowing, you know, which single origin country it's coming from next time. <laughs> you give me something to aspire to. Of, no, I had such a blast getting to hang out with you in, uh, in Madeira. I feel like we, we knew each other from the internet streets for a while. But um, it was it was a really good time there. Did you, how'd you enjoy the the island? Like it, just in general, was I think it was your first time there as well, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I really liked it. Like it has such a, a kind of villagey feel. I mean, literally because there are a lot of villages there, and we hung out in them. But the landscapes are just really, really beautiful. Uh, I had no idea what to expect, um, and yeah, super blown away. I really want to go back. Yeah, it was the same for me. Like I had I'd spent some time in the Canary Islands in the Azores before, um, which I never know how to say correctly, like Azores, Azores. Um, but anyway, I spent some time there and I, I would say like Madeira struck me as the, the most beautiful, um, you know, just like geographically landscape wise, uh, just super drastic, like green mountains dropping into the ocean and cute little villages and stuff. So I was, I, I had high expectations, I think, like I was excited about the nomad village and the remote work conference that we were at and stuff, but I, um, I, uh, I, I was even I was taken back even more by the natural beauty than I than I thought I would be. 
Mm. I was also surprised. Like I was in Lisbon um, just before coming out to the island and I was super surprised by how much digital infrastructure the island has. Like you don't expect that from these sort of more off the beaten path destinations. But I found it pretty like comparable to Lisbon in terms of, you know, contactless payments everywhere and really like high quality Wi-Fi, etc. So that was really impressive. More of that. Let's ask our pal <laughs> yeah. Gonzalo Hall to uh, to like make this happen in more parts of the world. I heard a rumor there's going to be one in Brazil next. Oh yeah, I know. I'm excited about that one uh, as well. I mean, he's he's doing some really awesome things. Like uh, for for people that don't know who we're talking about, Gonzalo Hall, like the kind of the founder of uh, the digital nomad village there in Madeira, and um, literally like kind of <laughs> kind of like the the mayor of the island. He literally introduced us to the president of Madeira <laughs> and like, a, and like officials from uh, like Portugal, Spain, um, government officials from like Portugal, Spain, Cabo Verde were there. And he's just like glad handing with them. Like, Oh yeah, by the way, we're going to the president's house right now. And I was like, are you kidding? It's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, man, I would have changed out of my t-shirt. Like, I wish I would have known. <laughs> he, also, he also got recognized. It reminded me of hanging out with my YouTuber friends, you know, where people are just coming up to you in a cafe or in the street, like, oh my God, you're Gonzalo Hall. Like, he's yeah. such a celebrity. I love it. <laughs> yeah. At one point, I think, uh, I think we were together. You and I were together at this point. Um, this guy walks up and he's like, hey, are you guys, are you guys nomads? And we're like, what? It is like, are you, you one of those, no, he's a Portuguese guy, like a local Portuguese guy. Are you guys one of those nomads, some of those nomads? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, not, I'm not like that nomadic. I'm like, what is he getting at? And he's like, do you know this Gonzalo Hall character? <laughs> he's, he's very persistent. He's, he's created this, he's changed the entire complexity of this island. And like he goes into this thing, telling me the biography of Gonzalo Hall. No idea that we're like, you know, good friends. We're all hanging out together <laughs> that whole week. But uh, yeah, it's it's cool what he's done. I mean, I, and I think something that you and I are both really passionate about and something we'll spend a lot of time talking about today is this idea of global mobility and how it can and the ripple effects of that. Like maybe you I, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious to learn more about your personal story and like how you arrived to where you are today. But like early on in my nomadic travel career, let's call it. I, uh, it was all about travel and location independence and just like kind of a selfish mentality, you know, this is about me. Um, but I think there's this really cool understanding that, that we're arriving to now about the ripple effects that remote work and, um, a, a more borderless society in a lot of ways can, how it can serve local economies and the needs of people. And Madeira is like a, a, a microcosm of that. I mean, it's this little tiny Island that's been incredibly impacted in a positive way by bringing in remote workers and digital nomads. And so, yeah, I thought there was something like really special about the timing of that, considering this is the world you live in and what you're trying to do at Plumia. And, um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that, if that resonated with you at all, but that was the timing of that was very interesting for me. Uh, let's provide the, the audience with a little bit of context. Let's take people back I'll, and, and for, for, uh, for some context here, I specifically didn't ask any of these questions when we were hanging out because I was like, no, I want to get this on the air. So I am genuinely interested. Um, let's go back in Lauren's life. Uh, I've, I've read that you've been nomading since 2013. Um, but let, let's, you know, start it from that vantage point and kind of how you came to be in this nomadic world and the world of uh, global mobility, what you're doing at Plumia, and then we'll work our way forward. All right. Sounds good. So I think we actually have to start before 2013. So I always get asked, how did I become a digital nomad? And I feel like there's a straightforward answer that it's like, I graduated from university and I hit the road and I became a travel writer. We can kind of get into that. But really, I've always been nomadic because my father is a refugee from Iran to the UK. And he's also the youngest of eight children. Uh, and so growing up, I was always traveling to different countries. Like uh, all of my family pretty much left Iran and they all went to different countries. And so all of my family vacations growing up were essentially like driving across Europe to Germany to visit family there or flying across to the US or going to Dubai or Australia. And so for me, there was never really this moment where I was like, oh, I want to like live a traveling lifestyle. It's just that from a really young age, I've kind of been in between cultures um, and really like kind of going around the world and experiencing different places, um, but also kind of experiencing Iranian culture 
within those places. So, you know, if I'm going to visit my aunt in Hamburg, yes, I'm in Hamburg and I'm experiencing German culture, but I'm also in her apartment kind of experiencing diaspora Iranian culture. Um, and so for me, like traveling has always just been a part of life and kind of uh, crossing borders and experiencing different cultures um, and sort of cultures within cultures or kind of communities within cultures has just always been part of my life. Um, when I got to my teenage years, I started like jumping on Eurostar trains to get off of the UK, which is where I, uh, I grew up and spent time as a teenager, uh, going over to like Paris and Brussels um, and just sort of starting to explore and kind of, I guess, take my own trips that were nothing to do with family. Um, but it's definitely been there from, I mean, there's a famous family story. We're getting really personal now. You told me I was allowed to get personal. But um, there's, a, there's a family story of when I was two years old, going from the UK to the US for Christmas. And apparently I lined up all of my My Little Ponies, these little like pony toys, all along the back seat of uh, the entire airplane. And uh, this this was just me kind of, uh, I guess, like, <laughs> I don't even know, just like having fun on a flight. And I guess uh, I have continued that as well. <laughs> but yeah, literally, like, um, some of my earliest memories are traveling to, to different countries uh, and spending time with family. It's like baked into you from a from the early ages. I I often tell the like story that I was born to a pilot and a um, a flight attendant, and they told me something like, "Oh, you were on thirty planes by the time you were three years old, or or some number. I don't remember the two numbers, but um, and I always think like, although I didn't travel a lot growing up until I turned eighteen or something, I um I still like like that was sort of in me. I feel like I had to I had to get it out at some point. So okay, that's very very cool. And so now you know you go you move forward. It was kind of in your in your blood at an early age, but you you transition into this world where you're actually like working in this. You are uh, obviously employed at Safety Wing. You run Plumia. You're writing books. Um, but there was some transition period in between some steps that were taken. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about those. Yeah. So. Again, uh, going back a little bit more than the obvious, um, because I don't really get to talk about the the before um, nomading in, in 2013 kind of a portion of life. Uh, I'll also just add that for a couple of years before I went to university, I basically just went around with friends on music tours and I ended up being like a tour manager and an artist manager and a sort of PR like doing a bit of everything to to try and make um my friends folk music careers take off uh, and so again that was a different form of traveling and I sometimes say now that spending time on a music tour kind of teaches you everything you need to know to work in tech so I kind of see connections uh between these two things of just kind of crazy, creative, innovative people with like a lot of boldness to them. And it's kind of my job to try and get them organized. And that was very much the case when I was working in, uh, in music as well. I was trying to unlock potential of people who are uh, a bit strange and a bit different and very creative. Um, so that was another set of travel experiences. That was like uh, UK and Europe. But the part of the, the journey that becomes more recognizable to my world today, I guess, is when I graduated from university, I had spent my university summers um, sort of working abroad in Italy and France, teaching English and things, I guess quite a conventional kind of uh, if you want to travel and, and work and, and get paid. Um, but it was when I graduated from university that I became a travel writer and after that a foreign reporter. And I basically just kind of took off and I was traveling from place to place, picking up stories along the way. Um, and at some point, I got headhunted by Google to start working on Google Maps uh, in its earliest days uh, in editorial. So it was sort of based on the, the journalism work that I was doing at that point. Um, and from there, I sort of was in and out of Google and sort of doing, doing journalism, doing media. And then I think it was in 2018, I was approached by a publisher and an agent, like separately, um, who were like, you should write a book about digital nomads. Um, I was like the first, I was the first UK reporter to ever write anything about digital nomads for The Guardian when I was there. Um, and yeah, essentially I was recognized as somebody who might be able to write in this area in 2018. 
But the book that they wanted me to write was How to Be a Digital Nomad. And I had a really strong visceral reaction to this. Uh, I was like, oh, no, I don't want to write that book. Like, I don't want to tell people how to nomad. My kind of view on how to nomad is like, you get on a goddamn plane if that's what you feel like doing. It'd be a really short book. Like, it's just (laughs) do what you want. (laughs) Super short book, like one sentence book. I didn't have a lot of energy for that. But uh, sort of having, I guess, that opportunity, that offer, um, led me on this path to really starting to think about if I was going to write a book, what would this book be about? Um, and it took me a couple of years until the end of 2019 to kind of figure that out. But at the end of 2019, I left a role at Google with the intention of writing a book. And the book is called Global Natives. And it's about the past, present, and potential of borderless work, essentially like the origins of the Work From Anywhere movement and uh, a lot about kind of digital nomads and and the early days of that as a movement. Um, And so, yeah, I wrote that book. I left my job at Google at the end of 2019 to write that book. And then obviously three months in, a pandemic happened and all of a sudden remote work and digital nomads And all of a sudden, remote work and digital nomads were super front of mind. Like there was so much press coverage about nomad visas um, and about kind of uh, the idea of working from anywhere and and sort of traveling uh, to different places uh, because of the pandemic. And I guess we kind of saw like across the world how differently governments were, were handling that crisis. And I think it opened a lot of people's eyes, not just to kind of remote work overseas, but also just to this idea of being able to vote with your feet, being able to kind of move around the world and go somewhere better. I met um, a reasonably famous author in Singapore recently, and he told me about uh, the process that he went through. He was living in New York when the pandemic started. And he was just like, yeah, so I I went to the pandemic preparedness indexes and I cross-referenced and Singapore came up uh, like on the top. So that's why I relocated to Singapore. And that's like quite a nice example of, I think, the way that people's minds kind of shifted uh, about location uh, and, and about kind of, um, yeah, voting, voting with your feet, taking advantage of your global mobility if you hold a passport that allows you to do that. Um, and so, yeah, in 2020 and 2021, I was writing this book. While the pandemic was unfolding, there was a lot of redrafting as things changed and new things, new sort of mobility tools and things launched. It was quite a wild time. Um, And also in 2021, I did a tech policy fellowship with uh, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. So essentially a think tank created by the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Um, And all of this kind of led me to, to Plumia and to Safety Wing. So the Plumia project is something that Safety Wing launched. Um, It's basically the mission to build a country on the internet for digital nomads. And I met Sandro, the CEO, um, I think it would have been for the first time in December 2020. And we had very big disagreements about his strategy for delivering on this vision. Uh, And I I, I told him uh, that I thought certain aspects of how he was thinking about it were very limited um, and weren't really going to change anything in the world, uh, even if they kind of got a headline. So in the end, or eventually, uh, he offered me a job. And so since December 2021, I have been executive director of the Plumia mission at Safety Wing and also director of special projects at Safety Wing. So sort of working on the company itself, as well as this particular project. You've been busy. Are you tired? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I'm super tired after like saying all that. Like I need to work on my conciseness. That's actually feedback that I get from the CEO of Safety Wing, Sandra. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, it's a, it's a, Funny thing, I also I I host a long form podcast, so you know I might be the wrong uh, person to to uh, give feedback on because I get that as well. People will say like, you know, people like bite sized. Uh, people want the 15, 20 minute version of, and and you know you're going for an hour, and it's like, well, you know, I like long form. I listen to two and a half hour podcasts, and that's what I'm uh, I'm drawn to. But I d- I didn't think you were you were very long winded there. I thought I'm just checking off all these things, going like these are all really big accomplishments in and of themselves, and. To be honest, like I very rarely ask the kind of like stereotypical, like, tell me about your past questions. But the reason I did with you is because I think a lot of people see you where you are today 
Um, they see you, you know, working with governments around the world. You're building a country on the internet. You're writing a book. Um, you're working for a, a Y Combinator alum company. Like these are all pretty big success metrics. I think a lot of people would say, and they would, you know, be very curious to know how does one rise to that. And I also now know you well enough to know, like, you didn't necessarily take some like very traditional trajectory path to get to this place. Like you were riding around with uh, bands who were trying to, you know, build their careers that way. And you, so you, you took a little bit of a zigzagged approach and I think that's really cool. And I think people should, should hear that. Like there's not this single source of truth, single path to quote unquote success. Um, and, and you have to enjoy the ride and stay authentic to yourself throughout, which is, is something that I, I really see and like respect in your work. Oh, well, thank you. I think uh, if I can reflect something back on that, because um, if this is something that other people uh, are kind of thinking about when they're trying to shape their own careers and lives, I think something that's been really influential to me um, was at some point I stopped thinking about this idea of work-life balance, and I instead started thinking about work-life integration. Um, and so what I mean by that is essentially that I think for a long time I saw work and the rest of my life as quite separate from one another, and yet, I guess it was in 2018 when I was first asked to write a book, I realized that I'd been focusing, you know, on my journalism, on my craft and on sort of working, at, working for a tech company and everything. But actually, the thing that was most interesting was how I'd chosen to live my life while I was focusing on those things. Uh, as a digital nomad, that's kind of like what drew more attention to me uh, and what I guess I've become quite an authority on uh, in terms of uh, talking about a lot, at least, if that uh, gives me authority. But... I found that as soon as I stopped trying to kind of segment these different parts of my life uh, and think, okay, yeah, it's like that's work and this is just how I live and this is friendship or whatever, and instead just embraced the idea that I kind of wanted to be optimizing to spend every minute of every day doing something that I like in some way <laughs> and kind of like using that as a, as a metric, uh, that was quite a game changer. And I feel like it's really kind of driven things forward in my career over the past couple of years much faster uh, than it seemed to go uh, through my 20s. Um, and it's really, yeah, just that kind of mindset and approach. So kind of recognizing not just what you do, but who you are. I think that's really important for shaping a, a good career, but also a good life. Yeah, absolutely. I, in my case, I can say like I, uh, I, I took several steps backwards in my career, I guess, like uh, on that trajectory to have more of the lifestyle that I wanted. And I did at that time really think about work-life balance. Like I need to have a better life and I'll do my work, whatever it needs to be to have that life. But it's, it's tipping the scale back in that direction. And I have come to the point now to realize exactly like you, like, no, I just want to be doing things that I enjoy. I want, I don't really want to avoid work. I want to enjoy what I'm doing and it doesn't mean that every day is perfect or that I wake up every day psyched for what I have to do. Um, but it, in general, it means that the two weave together and, um, and I don't see them as these like distinctly different things. And so that's, I think that's really helpful for, for people to hear. Um, it was certainly helpful for me when I started hearing people talk about work-life integration, like, ah, oh, yeah, I can, I can pull on that and, and try to, you know, bake that into my life as well. So, okay. I want to ask you about, you mentioned safety wing plumia. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people listening certainly probably have some kind of idea of what we're talking about, but there's probably some that don't. And, and the two, uh, and, and honestly, for a while, I didn't actually understand how they worked together. So let's, uh, let's maybe provide some context around that. Like let's define Safety Wing and Plumia and, and how they work together. Yeah, so Safety Wing uh, is a Y Combinator alumni company founded in 2018. And the company mission is to build a global social safety net. And that is essentially the first step in realizing the vision of a country on the internet. So if you think about trying to create all of the things that you would expect to receive from a nation state, from a citizenship in a kind of more internet country, like a digital context. One of the most important things that you need to be able to deliver is essentially uh, the social safety net. So things like health insurance, income protection, pensions, 
this is like kind of country infrastructure. Um, and so with Safety Wing, uh, the company was really founded as step one towards this larger mission of a country on the internet and kind of like the thorniest, most difficult part, the part that's like not necessarily that sexy, but is like super useful. Um, and Plumia is a project within Safety Wing. Um, it was launched from a team hackathon in December 2020. So the Safety Wing team, which I think was only about 10 people then, it's definitely fewer than 20 people at that stage, they had a hackathon and they basically came up with the concept of Plumia because there's always been this kind of awareness in the company that the bigger picture is country on the internet. And so the hackathon was around. So what does that look like? What would we call it? You know, what would its its kind of logo be? Um, and so, yeah, they, they just kind of came up with that. This was before my time at Safety Wing. Um, and yeah, it was that same month that they arranged uh, a call with about 20 people from the remote work and digital nomad space. I was one of them to basically just present what they'd made and to be like, yeah, so we're building a country on the internet thoughts <laughs> and um and yeah i uh, i was deeply inspired by this i was working on my book at the time so i was connecting with a lot of people in the space so i was really starting to kind of like interrogate these ideas of kind of global mobility reforming the border system um and sort of these things that i didn't necessarily recognize until that call with safety wing um but are kind of the facets or, or part of the kind of problems and potential solutions that a country on the internet is addressing. Um, so yeah, from there, um, the Plumia project sort of started uh, in a more active way with a community. So there was a community throughout 2021 um, and that was run actually by uh, somebody else in the nomad space, uh, my friend Casey Rosengren, who uh, was the founder of a company called Hacker Paradise, which incidentally was the company that I uh, covered for The Guardian uh, when I first wrote about digital nomads. So just all very incestuous uh, in the scene. Everybody's involved in everything. But yeah, Casey, uh, Casey was really kind of spearheading this community aspect of bringing people together more widely than just those 20 people on the original call in order to uh, start really exploring like uh, what, what can be done with a, a country on the internet, you know, what's important, what do people think of it? And at the same time uh, that the community was going on, um, I was asked to start interviewing people um, sort of on live Zoom calls every week uh, for Plumier as, as part of the community. So I did that. I did that every week. I think it was from like May to September 2021, which, by the way, is like way too much. Like, don't do something on top of writing a book and like doing loads of public talks, like uh, live interviews with like. 30 people on the call every week. It can be quite high stress sometimes, but, uh, but it was really good fun. Um, and then it was in December, 2021, as I think I said already, um, when I was brought in as the executive director of Plumia. And from there, the project kind of took, I guess, like uh, a bit more substantial shape. At first, it was really just like the concept, uh, the vision, and then it was the community. And when I came along, I really wanted to, to kind of like get the big picture and figure out how we were going to deliver on this very specific thing that everybody was very enthusiastic about. Um, and that is the launch of a new global passport. Um, and so my part of the company, um, Plumia within Safety Wing, is very, very focused on this idea of global mobility, of improving people's global mobility rights so that it's easier for people like you and me, but also more broadly, uh, to actually move around the world. And so I set up a 10-year roadmap of how we were going to get to the passport. And that's what we're working on now. And so I'm currently in um, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I'm here with a couple of colleagues, with a developer and a designer. And we are actually creating the MVP of our first step towards uh, the global passport. Um, and that is a product called the Nomad Border Pass. And it's essentially a multi-country visa that will allow digital nomads to spend up to 90 days in participating countries. That's 90 days per visit. Um, and no gray area. Like they can be very sure that they are able to remote work, that they are welcomed by those governments in order to be able to kind of work and travel at the same time. Um, and the permit, the, the Nomad Border Pass, will be renewable every five years. So the idea here really is that we are trying to meet the needs of nomads by facilitating flexibility and mobility. 
Whereas a lot of the digital nomad visas that we've seen pop up since uh, since the pandemic have been a lot more focused on residency, which is kind of what governments want more than what nomads want. And one of the, I guess, interesting things uh, about the nomad border pass is it's essentially the foundations of what's required in order to create a passport and to be recognized as a country on the internet because a big part of my job right now uh, is to actually build diplomatic relations with both existing nation states and with international institutions or sort of regional institutions like the United Nations and the European Commission. Um, so yeah, I don't even remember the question that got me here. Again, I'm feeling like this got quite long form. <laughs> me neither. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember my question either, but I'm just, I'm fascinated, like thinking through the mechanics of, I sometimes think my work is important. And then I hear people saying like, oh, I'm creating a passport in a country. And I think, man, this is real or not, important's not the right word, but like complex. Like sometimes, you know, you're stressed out. I'm like, I can't imagine if somebody put this project in front of me and was like, here you go. We want to have a country on the internet. And, uh, oh yeah, by the way, we want people to have a passport that they can use. Um, and we want you to coordinate with all these countries, uh, around the world to make it happen. I would be like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Um, how, where do we start? <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm like, I am kind of curious, like where, where did you like, like, what was the starting point? Like, do you, do you start with existing countries? Do you, do you start by talking to nomads and figuring out what they want? Did you already have that context? Like, what was the what were the foundations of this? Well, first of all, at the point um, that I started working on Plumia, uh, Safety Wing had I don't know the specific figure, but like more than a hundred thousand customers, um, and so we had a lot of access to a lot of uh, users, like Nomad kind of end users. They're the kind of primary uh, safety wing customers. Um, and we had access to like uh, a lot of kind of uh, information and input. So that was a really kind of strong starting point. Um, and then the Plumia community at the point I joined had also sort of been there and been alive um, for about a year. So again, we sort of had these Nomad end users who are very like engaged um, to kind of draw on and, and kind of start figuring out what it is that we could do that would be useful to them um, in this space. Um, so that was really step one as kind of a I'm learning about the product terms because there's a Y Combinator company where like, you know, very producty in how we um, perceive things. And so I believe that is the discovery phase. Uh, so kind of like trying to understand the problem better. Um, but yeah, I had done quite a lot of research on the history of passports and visas and started to kind of articulate like what was wrong with how things are set up at the moment um, with regard to global borders and kind of changing landscape over the past 50 years of many people holding multiple citizenships or coming from sort of uh, global families, etc. I started to like research and articulate a lot of that in the creation of Global Natives, my book. Um, and so again, it was kind of drawing together, I guess, like everything that Safety Wing had done so far and then my own kind of interests and research. I should also mention that when I was with the Tony Blair Institute, I initiated a project about the future of citizenship uh, in light of remote work and digital nomads. So I'd also sort of been working on some of this and thinking about it beforehand, um, before joining the team at Safety Wing. Um, and yeah, just really trying to make sense of the noise, trying to figure out like what's, um, what's useful. One of the kind of uh, values that we have as a company at Safety Wing is to make, make stuff that's so good you tell your friends about it. So we're like really, really concerned with making sure that we can... Um, create create things that are genuinely like use uh, useful and valuable to our users um, and that's been kind of a guiding light we'll be right back to the show after a quick break for a note from our sponsor this episode is brought to you by my good friends over at greenback tax the very best in u.s expat tax services and the company that i've trusted to handle my tax situation since i moved abroad in 2015 greenback is 100 focused on helping u.s expats with their taxes and to date they filed almost 50,000 returns for nearly 15,000 happy customers like me living in more than 200 different countries around the world after seven years working together i can say with confidence that they make one of the most painful parts of life abroad an absolute breeze 
companies with their automated systems that store all of your information for you to make tax filing easy year after year, and the friendly advisors who you actually have a working relationship with. There are no robots over at Greenback. Best of all, everyone is a CPA or enrolled agent with a specialty in U.S. expat taxes, which means they know exactly how to help you take advantage of some incredible tax breaks because you're living abroad, not in spite of it. As of January 23rd, tax season has officially arrived, so it's time to get started. Learn more about Greenback Tax today by visiting greenbacktaxservices.com via the link in the show notes. Hey guys, if you're still around and enjoying this episode, then I think you might like my buddy Matt Bowles' podcast as well. He hosts The Maverick Show, and he's also a former guest here on About Abroad, telling very similar stories, bringing in people from around the world that he meets on his travels as he runs his location-independent business from various foreign corners of the world. If you guys are enjoying About Abroad, I'm pretty sure you'll like his show. So go over to the show notes, check it out, and give it a listen. I think you'll like it. You're, you're, you have a UK passport. I have a U- US passport. We're pretty like for for you, some people might not realize how lucky they are to have the passport that they have if you haven't traveled extensively um, and you haven't encountered people that have uh, less fortunate passports in terms of being able to travel freely and enter places visa free. Um, you and I both know plenty of people who who have experienced a lot of challenges uh, with regard to the passport that they have. And, and it can be just in terms of like a vacation. It can be terms of. Uh, I found love and I want to move to this country. And that's difficult because of my passport. Um, I want to get work. I'm from a war-torn place, whatever it may be. There's a, there's a million different ways to look at this. Um, are you trying to solve for, for that person, um, trying to help those people in particularly? Uh, or is that a, a byproduct, perhaps, of the, of the end goal? So we're definitely trying to help those people. Um, and I guess like the starting point to kind of understand this is that digital nomad visas have really kind of moved the dial in terms of governments used to issue visas or discriminate uh, against people based on on the passport that they had um, based on their kind of country of origin. That was kind of the criteria. Oh, if you come from India or Pakistan, like we're going to be more suspicious of you than if you're coming from Canada or the Netherlands. This was the kind of mindset. But digital nomad visas have really kind of presented a a step change on that because the requirements um, are not emphasizing country of origin anymore. They are emphasizing income and profession instead, which, you know, is not by any means total equality, but is certainly a step in the right direction. Um, There's this great phrase, uh, coincidence of birthplace, uh, which uh, I I must credit to Carolee Hendricks, um, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Jabatical, um, and very much part of our kind of ecosystem of uh, of remote work and digital nomad um, community people. And uh, yeah, this idea of the kind of coincidence of somebody's birthplace really kind of like defining their opportunities um, is something that I think is like very, very problematic. Um, And well, as I said, it's not like total equality to kind of go from that into income and profession, because there are still many factors that mean that maybe depending on where you're born and which passport you hold, actually you can't meet, uh, for example, a a minimum income requirement uh, that is set at a global standard, or maybe there aren't like tech jobs in in your country and actually you're geo-restricted from applying for tech jobs in the US because of your passport, like a lot of complexity in the space. Nonetheless, it is a a sort of step in the the right direction and a sort of positive step. And so um, we, for the Nomad Border Pass, are essentially working with that same kind of criteria of de-emphasizing country of origin and instead emphasizing income and profession. So that's kind of step one. But by the time we get to the full passport rather than the multi-country visa, which is what the Nomad Border Pass is, um, we really want it to be the case that it can be granted based on common humanity. So a kind of global or world passport that is not dependent on uh, who your parents are or where you happen to have been born, but is instead uh, sort of recognizing you as a human in the world uh, and your kind of fundamental rights that come attached to that. It sounds so natural, right? Like, like when you just start from not where we actually are, but when you just start from there, it's like, oh yeah, well, if shouldn't it just be that way? But, but it's not. And, and so it has to be created. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's, I think it's, it's kind of, easy to understand like how we've gotten to where we are in the world if you consider that you know the internet and remote work are new phenomenon 
right? So like they make it very obvious that it's a really stupid way to organize the world, that there are all these kind of inherent uh, inequalities and, and sort of areas of discrimination that, that come up when you're defining people based on where they were born or who their parents are. Um, but yeah, it's only recently really that I suppose over the past like 30 or 40 years that it's become like really, really obvious as technology takes off and kind of makes life and then our day-to-day experiences more global um, that we kind of realize that uh, some of the systems that are governing our lives really have to change uh, to kind of like keep up to date, uh, sort of a new operating system for the 21st century. That's how I see it anyway. Yeah, I mean, governments aren't exactly known, not, maybe not all governments, but uh, governments aren't exactly known for moving quick on such things. And, uh, and, and in the tech space, I think we're, we're used to moving really fast, move fast and break things, as they say. So like, how do you, I would love to know how you balance working with governments in this space and like trying to innovate on, uh, these are very big, complex systems that, that move it uh, presumably sort of a snail's pace in, in comparison. So like, how do you straddle those two worlds? Yeah. So, I mean, we take a very, very collaborative approach with governments. Um, and again, I guess in a way, I mean, for the Nomad Border Pass, governments are very much our users as well. So what I said before about, you know, making something that's so good, you'll tell your friends about, that doesn't just apply to the Nomad end users, but actually the government end users. And something that I find quite interesting is you speak to people in government and policy circles, and they are really, really frustrated by uh, the technology that they're using. You know, there are a handful of countries, a handful of places, Singapore, Dubai, Estonia, that have really great digital infrastructure. You don't really get complaints from those policymakers uh, or those government officials so much. But for much of the rest of the world, you know, governments really want to be able to deliver tax services that are as good as Uber and Airbnb um, and Amazon and Google, but they're just kind of not equipped for it. As in, they don't have the the knowledge and the heritage uh, in most cases to actually be able to succeed. In my country of origin, the UK, every year there are millions and millions of pounds uh, on botched IT projects. The tabloids and newspapers love to get a hold of it and you know hold the politicians accountable for uh, all the money that they're wasting. But it kind of just makes sense because you know if if you are if you imagine it more as like you know very old company. Um, which is like, okay, let's do digital transformation. Let's get into tech. Of course, like you're not necessarily competent at a thing that you have no sort of experience doing. So I don't think it's particularly surprising. And the people actually within governments are very frustrated by this because, you know, they're, they're ordering their Uber Eats when they get home at night as well. And they're booking their holiday on Airbnb. They're used to good user experiences. So we really try and work collaboratively with governments and see where we can add value in exactly the same way we're doing with nomads. Um, and so, I mean, maybe an interesting thing to kind of comment on here is we had the opportunity uh, within my first year at Safety Wing, sort of last year in 2022, um, to sort of launch consultancy services for governments. So as in to contribute to their projects and kind of be the external consultants on tech uh, and kind of on policy. And we thought really carefully about that as an opportunity, because obviously this is a great way to kind of like build relationships with governments and to kind of like establish mutual trust. But we decided against it in the end for exactly this kind of reason that you bring up of the the kind of pace of projects and the blockers that can happen when they are government led. So we wanted to take more of an approach of moving fast and breaking stuff, uh, which is why we went in this direction of designing our own product, the Nomad Border Pass, and then inviting governments to come and be a part of it. Um, And that approach seems to be working really well. And I think... I'm really excited. We're going to have a demo available uh, within the next few weeks. I'm super excited to, to share that with the governments that I've been speaking to um, and just kind of go through it with, with them and, and see how it compares to the kind of technology that they're used, used to. Um, because, yeah, I, I've seen literally we started the, the build sprint that I'm here on only three days ago. Um, but I've seen like the, the early kind of like MVP versions of things, and it looks so good. <laughs> like, I'm so excited to, uh, to to show it to people. That's got to be so awesome to see it like coming into fruition. These all these ideas, like the the think tank 
approach and then like actually putting pen to paper on it has to be really fun to be a part of. And especially like getting physically together with your, your teammates there in Kuala Lumpur and, and doing it. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of fun energy coming from that. So I, okay. And I, what I want to kind of to, to wrap this part of the conversation up, what I would love to do is kind of um, just make sure that we all understand like what the end result looks like. So like, because it's, it's easy to say like, um, you know, a country on the internet and it's easy to say uh, a global pass or pass passport that will allow you to enter multiple countries. But there's like some mechanics there, like some, some tangible aspects that, that we haven't yet touched on. So like, I guess there's sort of three phases and I'll just ask all three of them together and then let you sort of run with it wherever you want. But like, there's like the, the application phase, like how does one become a part of Plumia and how does one have a passport? Um, what does that look like once you actually have it, you know, like do like, there's not a physical place where you're going to own a home, um, in your country and have like a physical address. So what, are, what does that kind of thing look like? And then what is the future of, of Plumia? Like how will this evolve over time. So very complex. I don't, I don't mean for you to answer each part of that in detail, but just kind of generally speaking, like walk us through those, those few steps. So I've, I've missed one step out and I've just written them down so that I can keep straight here, but it was apply and then a middle one and then like kind of future of it all. Yeah, it was a stupid question. Um, so <laughs> the, uh, the idea of what I'm trying to get at is kind of like, what do you, what will someone need to do to become a part of this, like to get the passport to become a part of Plumia? And then what does it actually look like once you're, uh, once you're living in Plumia? Um, and then like, if there's any kind of evolution beyond that, um, or anything that I've sort of missed conceptualizing the question, um, you know, make sure to, to provide some context on that. You obviously know more than me. Okay. So I just want to caveat what I'm about to talk about with, um, I, I think it's difficult to talk about the passport right now because we are like nine years away on our roadmap from the passport. So I'm going to kind of answer the first part of your question with regard to the nomad border pass, as in like, how, how do you get it? It's going to be a very simple application form in which you're giving the information that you would expect to give when you're applying for any visa, pretty much for any country. Um, and that is going to be um, uh, just in a sort of beautiful digital interface, uh, which which sort of like uh, coaches you through it. And we're aiming for an application time of less than 10 minutes. So really kind of simplifying it down and making sure that it's not this horrible kind of like situation people find themselves in where they're in some weird like PDF form and like it's not saving or working and, you know, the questions are poorly phrased, everything like that. Um, and so the Nomad Border Pass in some ways can really be seen as kind of like version one or stage one of the passport as a whole. Um, and so, yeah, it's really about uh, just kind of, we see ourselves at Safety Wing very much as the bridge builders between, you know, what exists in the world today and a potential future. And so that means we're really trying to kind of like make stuff that works in the world today that kind of meets requirements so that countries actually will participate in our program uh, and be part of the nomad border pass um but with a with a view to, to kind of a very like fast changing landscape um to do with some other things that i'll talk about in just a second um but yeah uh so that's like one aspect the kind of actual application process will be like that but this kind of like bigger question of you know what's what are we aiming for? Like kind of paint you a picture of, uh, of what it is to be an internet country citizen. The idea that we talk about a lot in Safety Wing is citizenship as a service. And that's really what we're aiming for. So it's this idea that the stuff that you would traditionally access through a nation state, you can instead access at the global layer. We're building a global, portable, borderless version of that. So the social safety net is a really big part of it. That's going to operate um, essentially like a membership um, and the, I think, visa aspect of it, the kind of facilitating of global mobility is another really big aspect of it. There is also much more to kind of fill in the blanks with that vision. Um, and we take quite a collaborative approach. So we are really excited about like some of the other projects kind of happening uh, in, in sort of related spaces right now. Um, if anybody is interested in the wider kind of internet country landscape, a great place to look is going to the networkstate.com slash 
dashboard, I believe is the URL. Um, and that is the network state is the book and website of Balaji Srinivasan, who's one of the leading thinkers in this space. And on that dashboard, you will find Plumia and you will also find 23 other projects um, that are also working on different aspects of a kind of internet country vision. Um, none of them, as far as I know, it might be like one other project that's kind of like in this more citizenship as a service sort of space. But a lot of those projects are focusing more on, uh, you know, like building new cities, for example, uh, and sort of getting them recognized as jurisdictions, things like that. Um, but yeah, it is kind of a, an evolving landscape. And within that ecosystem, we see ourselves as the bridge builders. We see ourselves as the ones kind of interacting with the infrastructure that exists today, um, make, making sure that it can be global and digital and easy to use and sort of like suitable for the 21st century citizen, as it were. Um, and I think like the, the other thing that I just wanted to mention is this kind of local and, and global layer thing that I just made reference to. So we really see ourselves as building this global layer on, on top of what already exists. Um, but there's also a local layer that is super, super important. And um, that's essentially projects that are on the ground and really kind of preparing communities and preparing different locations for um, more nomadic visitors, for people to actually uh, kind of enjoy that global mobility uh, and sort of spend time in host communities uh, around the world uh, without necessarily uh, causing problems uh, of the kind that we see. You know, we see gentrification, we see property prices going absolutely mad in different like popular places around the world. And I think it's super important. Again, we take this collaborative approach to be collaborating with that local level to make sure that it's possible um, for there to be kind of, we see it as triple wins. So we want wins for nomad visitors, host communities, and for governments. Um, and we really just kind of want to, yeah, kind of uh, solve some of the problems um, and, and make sure that uh, those triple wins can, can really be realized. It's got to feel pretty uh, gratifying to be in your position, like given that you were already writing this book, right? And this is already a big part of your your life story. And, and now you're actually getting to work on this every single day and, and build something really impactful. Like, do you ever take some time to kind of reflect on on where you've arrived and, and what you get to do day to day? Yeah, for sure. So actually, um, I, I think the, the way to kind of describe it is at some point, I don't know, maybe three or six months ago, I kind of just like, had a moment, I think I was drinking a cup of tea because, you know, country of origin is the UK. Always got to be drinking a, a cup of tea when you're having a reflective moment. But I was just kind of like, shit, I've arrived, you know, like, like I'm kind of like exactly where I should be right now, doing exactly what I want to be doing. Um, feeling a bit like I've, I'd achieved that kind of work-life integration thing uh, and really I'm just spending my time. The way I feel about my work is essentially that like I would be, I would be trying to do this on the side if it wasn't my day job, as in like on a voluntary basis or, you know, on a kind of side hustle basis. So the idea that I get to spend all of my time uh, on this uh, is incredibly, incredibly gratifying. Um, and yeah, I feel very, very lucky to have colleagues who are all incredibly mission aligned and wanting to make the same impact in the world that I do. Um, and really, really grateful to all the experiences that I've had in my life that have kind of put me in the position where I am the right person to be doing this. Um, so here we are. <laughs> here we are. And and physically, here you are. You're in, uh, you're in Kuala Lumpur right now. This is sort of like a a home base for you is I think you told me, right? Yeah. So I consider two places in the world to be kind of my favorite home base destinations. Um, one is Amsterdam in the Netherlands. That's kind of my European home base. And the other is Kuala Lumpur here in Malaysia. Um, and it's kind of a Northern hemisphere summer and winter situation. I'm just always chasing summer. I don't like the cold very much. Um, and yeah, I'm here in Kuala Lumpur. I, um, I guess like we're super, super local here. So like 
I, I walk around without using Google Maps very much. I know exactly where to go, you know, like to buy like the various, like, I don't know, beauty products or like clothing products that uh, that I want here. Uh, I know exactly where to go for good coffee and which restaurants to avoid because they're not very good. Um, I really can kind of navigate this place like a, like a local. So it's a really good place to be. And I guess that's kind of how I define a home base is a place where you feel like very local where you just know how to kind of get on with your life and you don't necessarily have like that holiday feeling where like there's no routine and there's no kind of like um, consistency around what you're doing and oh I'll just eat like four meals today because I'm only here for I don't know a short period of time and I want to try everything I really have like none of that with KL I'm just incredibly local incredibly at ease here Oh, uh, that's epic. I, I've never been to, I haven't been to Malaysia at all. Uh, obviously haven't been to Kuala Lumpur because of that. Um, and, and I feel like it is a, you know, when people think about going to, uh, this part of the world, they might talk a lot about, you know, going to Bali or Thailand or Vietnam or something. And like maybe Malaysia flies under the radar a little bit. I, that could be my perception. I might be wrong. Um, so I don't know if you share that. And, uh, but, but I think it'd be cool to just talk a little bit about like, like why Malaysia, like you could live anywhere in the world. And, uh, and so, you know, what, what makes this place special and, and maybe share some like insider knowledge. So people listening could think, you know, maybe put it on their radar. Yeah, for sure. So the best way to understand Kuala Lumpur specifically, and I'll start by talking about Kuala Lumpur, uh, is it's like the New York city of Southeast Asia. So you have young, bright things from all the neighboring countries, all the neighboring cities uh, coming here to try and make something of themselves in the big city. You know, whether they're like a hairdresser or a bartender or in the knowledge profession, like working in tech or banking or whatever. That's the kind of vibe of the place. Um, and I think also comparably to New York, it's a very, very multicultural place here. So you have, um, you have uh, ethnic Malays, you have ethnic Chinese, and you have ethnic Indians are like the main kind of groups that make up uh, Malaysia as a country. And so you have like a huge amount of diversity. You can get absolutely incredible food. You can go through parts of the city here in KL that really feel, you know, like India or like China. Um, and I think that gives it a really special feel. In addition to that, there's quite a strong um, kind of Arabic community as well, like Middle Eastern kind of community here. Um, and again, you can go to areas that feel very much like you are in the Middle East. Um, and I kind of love that diversity of just being able to walk around and feeling like there are little like pockets of different cultures around everywhere. Um, and there are a lot of expats and increasing numbers of nomads here now as well so it just has an incredibly like it feels like a global village KL and that's one of the things that I really like about it um it's also a place that's like really quite developed like I'm sitting in an Airbnb apartment right now and it's like a high-rise skyscraper and it's got a swimming pool and a gym in the building and it's a fraction of the price uh, per month of what you would pay for a really terrible place in like London or New York uh, or even like Singapore uh, which is close by, but uh, a lot more expensive on that front. Um, and what else do I like about um, KL? Maybe just to give like a comparison to Singapore, actually. So a lot of people have been to Singapore. A lot of people talk about Singapore as being a really amazing place. I agree. I have a lot of friends there. I'm going to spend some time there next month. But the thing I don't like about Singapore is I think it like lacks grit. It's like it's not dirty enough. And they kind of like... Uh, don't have a kind of gritty underbelly. Whereas, uh, whereas I think in KL, you do have a, a lot more of that. You know, you can walk through uh, sort of like shopping malls and see a lot of skyscrapers. You can go to like luxury places and do all of this stuff. But you can also walk through Chinatown and, you know, you're like tripping over plastic chairs and, and there are rats and there's trash around. Um, and to me, like that's part of what makes a place interesting, kind of the culture and the cracks, not just the kind of like, um, I guess, more artificial built up stuff. Um, and I guess there are probably some digital nomads listening. So I should also say the data is very, very cheap and very, very fast um, in Malaysia. Uh, and so is the Wi-Fi. So that for me, like one of the biggest like bugbears of nomad travel 
to new places or to places where like the infrastructure isn't so good is that kind of impact of um of like oh no I can't do my work like uh like uh, you know I'm like on a video call and like it's cutting out or whatever so I always think that's kind of worth pointing out and just very briefly I'll also mention my second favorite place um in Malaysia which is uh Georgetown which is the capital of Penang a little island off of mainland Malaysia doesn't quite feel like an island because you can actually drive there there's like a highway going over the water um but it's a really kind of like vibrant very kind of hip place um and you have loads of like old converted like shop house buildings and bus stations and things that have been turned into these kind of hubs that are little like artisan shops um, and little kind of like street foodie kind of places um really amazing cocktail bars uh there and also in in kl um and yeah the food in penang is absolutely incredible so they have a really really uh, strong sort of street food scene of local um malaysians specifically kind of penang dishes um and i think it's known as like the food capital of malaysia but again to make the comparison with singapore because i think people tend to be a bit more familiar with it um people talk about the hawker centers in singapore I would say that the hawker centers in Singapore are fine, but the street food in Penang is like out of this world. So there's just loads of great stuff going on here. Malaysians are really like chilled out, kind of uh, like fun people, very global people, very internet-y. Um, so I think this makes it a really good place for, for nomads. Everything you've just described makes it seem like like if somebody told me about this place, I'd be like, I think Lauren would really like this place. <laughs> like, it's like it being like a little global village and all this, the food and wanting you want a little grit and grime, you know, like the the beautiful facade is nice to look at, but also lacks some character. I also feel you on that completely like somebody. Um, somebody might be listening and be like, why don't you want things to look nice? But I know exactly, I 100% know what you mean. Like I see character when I, when I see that. Um, so the, the fun is in the differences. And, uh, I think we, we both definitely align on that. Um, this was, this is awesome. I know I have to let you go. So, um, we will, uh, we'll go ahead and, and wrap it up there, but I learned so much and, uh, have just really enjoyed like getting to know you and, and love the work you're doing. Um, so thanks for sharing here. Uh, where can people follow along, learn more? Um, any any links you want to mention that they should go to? We'll put all of this in the show notes as well. Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me by searching my name, Lauren Rosavi. Um, and I also have a Substack newsletter, globalnatives.substack.com. And Global Natives is also the name of my book, which is launching on Amazon Kindle on March 7th. So please pre-order it uh, and enjoy it and get in touch, uh, be part of the newsletter so that we can kind of continue the conversation around global mobility and sort of future of citizenship and all that good stuff. Awesome. Yeah. All the, the links for all of those are in the show notes. So if you're listening and interested, um, go ahead and just click through. You can uh, you can go do all of that right there. I highly recommend the the newsletter. Um, and I'm excited to read the book. I'm sure it will be fantastic as well. But um, if, you've, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then you will get a lot from the newsletter. So please do follow along. Um, Lauren, this is awesome. I hope you have a, a, a great rest of the day there in KL. And uh, we'll, we'll be able to catch up again soon. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in today from wherever you are in the world. Once again, I'm Chase. And this has been another episode of About Abroad. For those of you wondering how you can best support the show, I have made it super simple for you. Just go over to the show notes of the episode that you just finished listening to and click on one of the two following links. Aboutabroad.com slash newsletter to get our monthly newsletter. No spam, guaranteed. Or ratethispodcast.com slash aboutabroad where you can quickly and easily leave a review for the show. It's not just important to me, it also helps more wanderers just like you find us. Finally, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, and we will see you again next week. Thanks again. Hasta luego, amigos.